0: You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Good morning. You can be seated. So good to see all of you. It's always uh, one of the many stops that I make. This is one of my favorites. And I was thinking this morning that I believe, if I'm correct, that uh, I've been coming here almost 20 years, 21 years. And as I said yesterday, thanks for not changing the locks on the door and keeping the light on for me. I understand the time restraints with um, more than one service, so... I would ask you, if you would, to turn with me to the Acts of the Holy Spirit, more commonly re- referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. And um, while you're finding the text, Acts chapter 1, and then we'll be reading from chapter 2 as well, I'm going to be reading um, a lengthy portion of Scripture, which in most circles is considered the death of good preaching, <laughs> to read too many verses. Um, in reality, this particular text has enough texture to it that it teaches itself, essentially. And I, before I move forward, I want to say what an honor it is to be here with Bishop Q., This is my first time meeting him, and I don't know whether these feelings are mutual or not, but uh, when we met the other evening, you know what it's like when you meet someone for the first time, and you feel, where have you been all of my life? And I felt that way. So in Acts chapter 1, I would like for us to begin reading in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel or kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, many of you are aware, before we go to chapter 2, that uh, my eschatological views or views of the end time are not traditional. They are not conventional. Maybe they're more conventional than most people realize. But obviously these men are gazing up into heaven with the assumption that he would ascend and descend in that very moment. They were looking for the second coming. What we're about to read in Acts chapter 2, in my opinion, is the second coming. We have relegated the second coming of Jesus into the future. It's out there on the horizon. Uh, In actuality, there have been many comings of the Lord. He has come in many different forms and in many different dimensions. And the issue has been that we have been unable to perceive it. He did this during his resurrection when he is uh, showing himself alive by many infallible proofs, as Luke says, in his treatise to Apollos. And he is appearing in forms that were foreign to them. And so the issue was really perspective. Perspective, I say without fear of contradiction, is everything. So in Acts chapter 2, now we begin reading in verse 1. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. At this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us? In his own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling, in our own languages, in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and were all amazed and perplexed, saying one to another, what does this mean? And others were mocking, they said, they are filled with new wine. In reality, that conclusion was not entirely wrong, because Jesus had said to them in the upper room, and he took the cup, I will not drink wine with you again until I drink it new with you in my kingdom. I want to suggest to you that what is happening in this moment is that Jesus is coming now in another form. He is coming now not as a Nazarene. He's not coming as a carpenter. Remember, he had told them that greater work shall you do because I go to my Father in heaven. That was always difficult for me to wrap my mind around when I first read it. How can you do greater works than what Jesus did in raising the dead and cleansing the leper, healing all manner of disease? I want to suggest to you that the implications of what he said, greater works shall you do because I go to my Father, which is in heaven, is that when he descended now on the day of Pentecost. Now he comes not just a singular man, but he manifests himself in a many-membered body that Paul will refer to in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He multiplied himself in and through them. This is how the works would be greater than anything that he had ever done. Is anybody here this morning? So what happens in this very moment is that Jesus appears to them in the form of the Spirit and he toasts the coming of his own kingdom as they drink this new wine. Beautiful. Now, I have revisited this text many times over the years, as many of you have. Pentecost Sunday is a date in our church calendar that we celebrate and we commemorate because in reality, it is this seminal moment for those of us who identify ourselves as being a part of the Pentecostal tradition. And tradition is a word that is, you well know, been misused and abused in many ways. In Matthew, Jesus says in chapter 15, when he is addressing the concept of tradition, and what it had evolved into, what it degraded into. He said, You do teach for commandments the doctrines of men, and by doing so, the traditions of men have made the word of God of no effect. That seems to be contradictory there when Jesus makes that statement, because he observed tradition, did he not? You can see that throughout the gospel narrative. I think the distinction that Jesus was making in the same, is the same distinction that we need to make is that tradition is the living faith of dead men and traditionalism is the dead faith of living men. Now, I want to say that again. I've said that here before. I probably said it 20 years ago when I first came. Tradition is the living faith of dead men. Traditionalism is the dead faith of living men. So he is not by any means condemning tradition, but our understanding of it and how it applies. Right now, we are in the wake of everything that's happened in the last year and a half. One of the consistent questions that I am fielding from people is when will we return to normal? When are we going to have a reset. Maybe the reset that we're looking for is not a factory reset. Maybe it is not returning to a norm that we are familiar with. And it reminds me in many ways of the word nostalgia. When you hear the word nostalgia, for the most part, it has a very positive connotation to it, doesn't it? That's nostalgic. You find yourself drifting off into the past and remembering things that happened that imprinted you, had an indelible impression on you. But in reality, the word nostalgia is a compound word which means to have a pain or an ache to return to home. The word was coined Uh, in the 17th century by a medical student to describe the anxieties that he had been observing among Swiss mercenaries that had been fighting away from home for years at a time. It was applied later on during the Civil War because enlistments, obviously, during that particular era in history, they didn't have the convenience of connection like we do today these conditions that were later described during the period of the Civil War. And, of course, I'm not just referring to something in history as much as I'm referring to something that we are experiencing to a great degree right now. Now, don't misinterpret what I meant by that and go to any extremes, but we are living now more than ever before, at least in my lifetime, it seems, in the most polarizing, divisive times that we've ever seen. And it continues to ramp up. Am I talking to the right group of people this morning? So the conditions of nostalgia were later described by field doctors during the Civil War as being despair and homesickness so severe that soldiers became listless and many of them sometimes died. And there was no physical reason to describe it. It was something that was working in them that caused them to want to go back to the way things were. I think that there is somewhat of a feeling of nostalgia when it comes to us somehow being able to return to and regain the power of Pentecost. The raw power of Pentecost. Pardon me for the personal reference, if I may here, but I'm a third generation Pentecostal. My father was a fiery Pentecostal preacher whose roots went back to the revival that occurred in 1886, back in the... Mountains of southwestern North Carolina. And in the early days, when I was coming up in his home, and this probably will be helpful for some of you that are, you know, just coming along in the last few years, to be identified as a Pentecostal growing up was a stigma. You were stigmatized, ostracized, you were considered by the highbrow evangelicals as being uneducated and unsophisticated because after all they had concluded in their scholarly interpretation of scripture that all these things had ceased with the apostles that this was something that was his, that historically happened they could not deny because the text makes it clear that it really happened historically it happened but because they could not harmonize their own experience or maybe I should say their lack of experience with what they read in the text, they went to great efforts to discredit the present experience of that. I want to say without fear of contradiction That my Pentecostal fathers, what they may have lacked in theological acumen, they made up for in bringing people into the tangible experience of what it's like to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And I'm of the opinion that people long for that now more than ever before. I love theology. I uh, am an avid and have been all my life an avid reader. I am constantly in pursuit of those that challenge what I have felt was non-negotiable. I want to spend the rest of my life as a learner having the beginner's mind. That's essentially what I pray for every day. I want the beginner's mind. There is such a pretentious attitude that I've encountered, though, among uh, among many that uh, have concluded that there is nothing yet to be experienced or to be revealed. You know, it'd be great if we could somehow read the text that I just read to you in high definition and surround sound, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be awesome? Awesome. And when the day arrived, the day of Pentecost, they were in one place. One place. There's some question as to whether or not this was the same upper room as where Jesus had shared with them the Last Supper. I, I wouldn't want to debate over that in terms of the location. I think the point being here is that they were in one place and the truth is is that we all can be gathered together that doesn't mean necessarily that there's any assembling taking place that doesn't necessarily mean that we're in one place i've said it here before and i'll say it again that just because you're sitting in that chair doesn't mean that you're here any more than your eyes being open is an indication that you are fully awake They were in one place. We know that it took 10 days because Pentecost, of course, 10 plus 40, the 40 days that he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs, adding 10 days of their waiting on something that they weren't quite sure what it was going to look like. Jesus had told them that you'll receive power, but that was rather vague, wasn't it? What's this power going to look like? How... What are we to expect? I think that we need to realize as well that this is in close proximity. Where this happened at the temple, this is in close proximity to something that had been essential for centuries to their belief system, the temple that was the epicenter of their faith. And Jesus, when he cried, it is finished on the cross, the scripture says that there was seismic activity. There was not just an earthquake, but there was a great earthquake and the veil was rent in twain from top to bottom. This veil that is described in the Old Testament, massive veil in its span, took teams of horses to hoist it up into place. And it's several inches thick, made of fine linen. And when Jesus cried, it is finished from the cross, this earthquake occurred. Rocks began to break open like walnuts at the the base of the cross. And they could hear the sound. They must have heard the sound of the veil being torn. They heard it being torn in half from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top but from top to bottom because he understood that we could not access him. He came to us so that we could come to him. So in close proximity to where these people are gathered, which, by the way, the writer says was about 120 people, I think that is worthy of note because we are seeing something here that is reminiscent of what happened At the dedication of Solomon's temple, if you go back into Kings and Chronicles and read the vivid description of the the dedication of Solomon's uh, temple, there were 120 priests dressed in their vestments. And uh, when Solomon stands up on this platform in order to dedicate it on this signal day, the priests take silver trumpets in hand, 120 of them to be exact place them to their lips, and when they release this sound, the presence of God so permeates the temple until there was no ability in them to stand. They all hit the deck. Is everybody here this morning? I feel like preaching like a Pentecostal, and I haven't done that in a long time. Maybe this is summoning in their memory something that they had read about or heard about is it going to look something like that but they waited didn't they for 10 days and i've always been uh, a proponent of the importance of waiting because what happens in us while we wait is as important as what we're waiting for what have you been waiting for what have you have, what have you anxiously been expecting and you're not sure what to expect? Or are you in the grip of nostalgia that wants to go back to the way things used to be? Maybe God has let a number of things fall apart globally, and even in your own home, and He did so not because he was doing something to you, but He was working something in you that was ineffable, indefinable, indescribable. Maybe He was working something in you that He might do through you in a new demonstration of His power. I'm, I, I, you know, I don't read anywhere in church history where anything was replicated from the day of Pentecost. I mean, there is this sonic boom that rushes in that is deafening in nature. There's pyrotechnics. There is fire that manifests on the heads of these people. And, you know, whenever we read Luke's account of this, there's still a lot left to the imagination. What must have been going through their minds in that moment? What must have been going through... What mean? What does this mean? I mean, later on, there are other people that are having difficulty defining what is going on, but they themselves had no language for it. The Old Testament, as we've heard so often, is the New Testament concealed as the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so I would be remiss if I didn't point out to you that there must be a definite connection between what happened on this day, 2,000 years ago, in Jerusalem. Knowing again before I move on that they can't go back to animal sacrifice. They can't go back to the previous familiar paradigms. Jesus had upset all of that from the inauguration of the Eucharist when he picks up the cup and the bread... And they had no frame of reference for this because for centuries they had been celebrating the Passover. And when Jesus picks up the cup and the bread and he says, all this has been pointing to me, it has arrived. Now all of that is gone. What had been normal was not going to be the new norm. Are you with me so far? It was not going to be the new norm maybe we too are at some inflection point maybe we too are at a point even though we ha- have we have this shared tradition that we you know we we are grateful for but maybe god has decided that he is going to bring us into an experience that transcends everything that we have ever known and i say yes to it It always encourages me when I go to places and God is not acting like He's supposed to and He's coloring outside of the lines. That's always been encouraging to me. The reason why some people cease to go to church is because they've already been. They're not wanting to go to church because they've already been. I understand the value of liturgy. I'm all in. I understand the value of some of these things that are quote-unquote predictable, but how many of you are longing for something that is so shocking and so changing in your life as these people were that will, sh- that will shock you into a new reality? Maybe what we should be anticipating is shock and awe. Because this is what happened to them, Obviously as I was about to say before you interrupted me. I'd be remiss if I didn't point out the obvious parallels, maybe ostensibly the parallels between the Tower of Babel, this Babylonian ziggurat from the Old Testament, this attempt of men to build a tower that would reach to heaven, Genesis 11. We won't take time to run over there but many of you are at least somewhat familiar with that area of Scripture. I think maybe we've come to wrong conclusions about God's response to man's efforts to build this tower as if he was offended or as if he didn't realize that this would eventually happen. It was not their efforts to unify that God disapproved of. No. It was their misinterpretation, their misunderstanding of what real unity looked like. You know, this is something that I think that, especially now more than ever before, in these polarizing yet prophetic times, we need to realize that unity, the essence of unity, has always been diversity but with them in genesis 11 they had assumed that that unity was uniformity and conformity and so the reason why that god responds in the way he does in my opinion and he disperses them and he creates the diversity of languages it was something that we misinterpret and they misinterpreted because it had always been his desire to fill the earth with diversity, to fill the earth with his image. And what they were doing was trying to nostalgically, you know, gather around what they could create, what had happened, because this will happen in Acts chapter 6. <coughs> Remember in Acts 1. Jesus had told them that you will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so by the time we get to Acts chapter 6, what are they doing? Everybody is gathering around Jerusalem and thinking that, well, this is where it's at. This this is where God moved the first time. And so we want to stay in close proximity to this, not realizing that that was not God's ultimate desire. And so he allows Stephen to be stoned. Do you remember that story? He allows Stephen to be stoned, and it appears to be a tragedy. And when that happens, it says that the disciples were scattered abroad. Can you see the parallels and the connections between? They were scattered abroad, and the word scattered there is the word that is used to describe the dissemination of seed, how a farmer will scatter seed over a field, because God knew if they remained in Jerusalem, if they remained in that one place where he once had moved, that the seed itself would rot, proverbially, in the barn. Seed remaining in a barn will rot. It will germinate and produce a harvest if it's sown in the right context. See, this is the tendency. This has always been the tendency since Babel is that we want to go to those places where God has once moved and we don't realize quite often he has evacuated those places He has actually turned the power off. He's turned the utilities off. And he's moved to a new place. (coughs) So, I don't believe that he was condemning what was happening there in Babel as much as he was correcting their understanding of what unity looked like. Because if there's anything that we can take away from Acts chapter 2 in a contemporary sense is understanding and I think I've mentioned this in previous visits because the Pentecostal tradition that I grew up in our distinctive was that we spoke in other tongues. We prided ourselves that we speak with other tongues and I think that we've been masters at missing the point I prayed in tongues this morning before I left the room. I'll pray in tongues tomorrow. But the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 was not just to give us some Pentecostal distinctive among our evangelical brethren as far as I'm concerned, as much as it was to help us to understand this phenomenon, this anomaly that took place in the verses that are described in verses 7 through 13. The Holy Spirit has been given to us not just so that we can edify ourselves, but to learn how to speak the language of whatever culture we find ourselves thrust in in a way that is intelligible and understandable to people that were not raised in the religious jargon and language that is all too familiar with us. To me, the genius of Jesus, which that pales, I mean, that doesn't even seem proper to refer to him as a genius. The genius of Jesus is that he could take the lofty concepts of the kingdom of God and he could transliterate them into the language of the common, the unlearned, and the uneducated. That's what I long for. That's what I truly long for because I was convicted a long time ago when I began to understand that there were people that would come into the meetings where I'm teaching and I would see their furrowed brows and I could see that they were groping to keep up with what I was saying and I realized the issue was a language barrier. I was speaking English. That was their native tongue, but because they... Did not, they were not raised in the religious vernacular that was common to me. They couldn't connect. They could, is this making sense to you? They couldn't connect. And because I began to realize that I unwittingly had fallen in love with the sound of my own voice. That I had ceased to be a voice to those that needed to hear what the Spirit was saying. We live in a time right now where uh, culture wars, I mean, think of it, wasn't that long ago where we didn't hear those words weren't in play, were they? Culture wars, cancel culture all these new phrases have seeped into our vocabulary and culture wars have conditioned us see if you agree with this culture wars have conditioned us to be reactive instead of thoughtful unfortunately those who are reactive seem to get everybody's attention while the thoughtful are suspect in today's environment, reactive faith is viewed as strong faith. Right? The reactive kind of faith is viewed as strong faith, when actually, I believe it reflects our instability and our immaturity. That ready, fire, aim attitude is the cause for unnecessary collateral damage. I think people want to be a part of the conversation, and I'm not intending on playing with words here, but I think people really want to be a part of the conversation and not the discussion. Because the word discussion is in the same family of words of percussion and concussion. And they are getting accustomed to the culture that is being created that is all about things that have percussion and concussion to it. That where we bring all of our unperceived bias into the interaction. Unity requires understanding. Say that. And understanding requires conversation. Say that. Understanding requires conversation. And conversation conversation requires love. And love requires. Humility. I know we live in an argumentative culture. Dominance is always more interested in winning than it really is interested in truth. It's normal for humans to argue. But the truth often takes a back seat beating our opponents. Takes a back seat to beating our opponents. And we tend to argue a point. I'm just, this is therapeutic for me, even if you have already grown past this. Um, Even (laughs) beating our opponents. And we tend to argue a point even after being presented with evidence that we are wrong. The reason for this is that we valued being correct over connection. History history really in many ways is the story of war. That's what history is. It is usually written by the winners. The reason why history is a story of war is because men would rather go to war than lose an argument. almost over so be encouraged (laughs) love is not about victory for one and defeat for another love is about the achievement of unity and unity is really these days is not for the faint of heart is it it's really not it really has been what was in the heart of Jesus from the very beginning John 17, what does he pray for? Make them one. Make them one. And I think we've misinterpreted what Jesus was saying even in that prayer. That's the Lord's prayer. Not our Father which art in heaven, will be. that? That's our prayer. His prayer in John 17, make them one as you and I are one. And we assume that what Jesus was praying was that would you please make these quibbling disciples one. Because they are always arguing over who's going to sit on the right or the left. And that's not what he was praying for at all because he prays this prayer in a garden. Learn to connect the dots because oneness was lost in the garden. Not that garden, but another garden. This is where the myth of separation was birthed. This is where it happened. So he's praying for the oneness that he had with humanity that was lost through the myth of separation in another garden in Genesis chapter 3. He's praying for a oneness, a union to be restored with us individually so that it could be experienced collectively. the reason why in my opinion that many of the efforts of unity that have taken all on all kinds of ecumenical expressions have failed miserably is because we've been trying to somehow to get people to come into union with one another without them ever having the revelation of their union with him individually does that make sense to you see the most beautiful picture of union that ever we have ever given to us <clears throat> In all of Scripture is when God breathed into the nostrils of Adam the breath of life and he became a living soul. In that moment, the woman was within the man and he only separates the woman from the man so that they could procreate in their image in the same way he had created them in his. This is the ultimate picture of union. This is the first expression of union here on this planet in this visible material realm. And what Jesus was praying for is somehow can you restore to them the consciousness that they have lost and understand that their union has always been in and through me, that they cannot accomplish it apart from me. whenever I meet somebody from the first time I'm more aware of it now more self-aware than I used to be I'm still waking up to a great degree but when I meet somebody for the first time there is this subliminal voice that comes from my ego that immediately causes me to begin to recognize the differences between myself and that person some of them are obvious Some of it has to do with skin pigment. Some of it has to do not long into the conversation. I recognize by the language that they are speaking that they belong to a particular tribe. Isn't this the way the ego works? I think it was Wayne Dyer that said the ego is an acronym for edging God out. And I think that's beautiful. I think that's true. So much of... What we call Christianity today is very egocentric, it's very ego-driven, and we don't understand that when we meet somebody who is glaringly different from us, that this is Jesus appearing in a form that we have never seen before. But what we usually do is our ego concludes that they are our enemy. And the reason why most people are your enemies is because you really don't know their story. You think you do. If you knew their story, then you'd realize they're not your enemy at all. You see, God doesn't always speak to us. In the language of the religion we were raised in, as I said, the mediums he uses are often many and mystical. It was in the 60s that the uh, legendary troubadour Bob Dylan wrote a provocative song titled, The Answer is Blowing in the Wind. To the logical thinkers, that idea may sound like the babbling of some idealistic pop musician out of touch with the real world. But I believe the direction from which the wind blows reveals to us not just how that air currents move around us, but how the Holy Spirit is coming to us in the unseen realm because Jesus said, the wind blows where it listeth. You don't know where it's coming from or entirely where it's going. I go through periods of time, as many of you have, I'm sure, when I feel that I'm deaf and blind to spiritual things and I'm I'm earnestly trying to be attentive, but I hear nothing and I don't see anything. I'm waiting on the wind to blow, maybe like those faithful 120 in a room. And, you know, have you ever... Have you decided what was going on in that room? Because... We modern Pentecostals, we assume that they were in travail, (coughs) praying in earnest travail. I tend to believe that they were not so much praying in the way that we assume prayer to be expressed as much as they were becoming a prayer. Here they were. Just uh, flickering flames before the flames appeared in a confined space. And suddenly this sonic boom comes and breaks through and the dynamic of backdraft happens. Backdraft. You know what backdraft is, don't you? If you've not even seen the movie, maybe you're familiar with this dynamic. Backdraft describes what happens when a flame is in a confined space starved for oxygen. Do we have any firemen here? If there are any firemen here, any watching, part of your training that was critical to your training is if you enter a house that is on fire, you don't just indiscriminately go in and open a door because if you do, there might be A flame that is there that is starved for oxygen. And the moment you break into it, what happens is is that this flame that is starved for oxygen (laughs) sucks that air in. There's an implosion, and then there is an equivalent explosion. And this is essentially what happened. I think this is what happens in the experience of prayer. We are starved for oxygen. We're starved for him to breathe on us again. He's breathed on us once, but we need him to breathe on us again. And the result is obvious here in the book of Acts that, this, that when there was this implosion, there was an equivalent explosion that resulted in that first day in 3,000 souls coming into the kingdom of God, confirming that the 3,000 that died at Sinai are now restored in Mount Zion. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So, you know, a lot of times when something unexpected or unprecedented happens in our lives, we describe it in this manner. That blew me away. (laughs) How many of you realize that in many ways we need to be blown away again as they were on the day of Pentecost. So Father, this morning, in all my rambling and all my efforts to try to bring some contemporary application to the message, the original message of Pentecost, I pray that you would cause those who are caught in the suffocating atmosphere of polarization and divisiveness that is so prevalent in our, in our culture today, that you would breathe on them. Let there be fresh wind from heaven, moving them in a new direction, moving them with a fresh expectation a greater realization of the coming of your kingdom what seems like an implosion right now is going to result in an explosion I thank you for that I ask that you would bless your sons and daughters in this house who you love beyond their finite feeble imagination and as we come to the table as we come to the table as they have so many times before and the bread touches their lips and they ingest the bread and the wine may their eyes be opened in a new measure in Jesus name Amen